This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on topics that lie on the intersection of finance and energy. This is Hill Vaden hosting this week. And I've got guests in Kareem Fawaz and Reed Olmstead, who are uh, repeat offenders. You guys have been on this uh, podcast many times. Uh, welcome back to both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, gladly. I uh, I was mentioning to you guys earlier that, that this topic and this conversation comes at uh, what we're going to talk about your, your recent oil market forecast, uh, Kareem, on the on the global side, and Reed's contribution to that, specifically on North America. But this comes. Uh, in specific request uh, from some of our um, colleagues and listeners who have wanted to, to, to hear what's going on in oil markets, uh, which are kind of newly, we've been hearing a lot about clean tech and, and low carbon energy, but uh, oil is somewhat fashionable uh, again as the commodity trade and super cycle discussion kind of heats up. Yeah, commodities are back. I mean, we're getting on our side more interest than we've had in a number of years here. Uh, in the market and the prices and the environment over the next five years. And do we think that's uh, kind of a, a sustainable interest or, or is this, you know, that there, there are, you know, some call it fund managers on CNBC right now that, that say the other trade is going to be more fashionable uh, in the immediate term, just give it time. I mean, it remains to be seen, but I think the inflation component and the broader commodity component to the whole to the whole rally, I think, is broader based. So it's not really an oil specific a trade that's forming it's across uh, across a number of commodities and across a number of markets and that story is likely to remain one of the big stories over the next couple of years so i think that temptation is there and a bit of it is also kind of a reaction to the whole climate clean tech the way you were mm-hmm. talking about earlier the focus on climate and and this whole constraint on capital going into the traditional oil and gas industry and now people starting to think about okay so if we are in an inflationary environment and money is being diverted away on the supply side, does this mean we're entering this, you know, sustainable, uh, attractive investing environment? So I think interest will be there. So in, in terms of the idea of kind of old being cool again or older things being cool again, I don't know if you guys remember, well, I'm sure you do, the baggy jeans and things in the, in the 90s that are all of a sudden back in vogue, uh, at least judging by the city streets here in Houston. But, but there was a... Uh, uh, a famous SNL, I think it was famous, a memorable SNL, uh, one of these fake Iron Live commercials called Bad Idea Jeans. <laughs> Do you guys remember this? Uh, so when Levi's was selling big jeans back in the 90s, not which weren't as big as like Jean Co or some of these crazy bigs, <laughs> um, this was back when Kevin Nealon and David Spade and others were on Iron Live and they you know, made this spoof of bad idea jeans where all these guys were hanging out on a basketball court, you know, coming up with bad ideas. Um, and, and the whole stick was like bad idea. And then it was, you know, bad idea jeans or whatever, <laughs> which I'm going to use a segue here, Reed, you know, when, when we're looking at oil markets and that the higher price environment that all of a sudden we're in, is it a bad idea? Are there, are there some bad idea jeans if one wants to start adding, adding rigs <laughs> or, or adding production or, 
And wh where are we in North yeah. America before we get in globally? So North America, we're really seeing a divergence. So the, somebody's somebody's got the bad idea gene. The question is, is it the public operators or the private operators? So the private operators, and, and we were just talking uh, the other day about our latest forecast and that we're putting out and, and what's changed, right? And Kareem feeds me a, a higher oil price. So uh, as would be predicted, my forecast brings down activity. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're starting to see a real divergence there, but we are seeing activity pick up in the private operators. And so one of the two, whether you know the publics are are holding fast to their to their cash flow mantra, the privates are growing. And so we're going to see, you know, can the privates sell out? Is that are they going to be able to to remain attractive enough, or is it the the public companies that are making the bad the bad idea genes here and uh, and they're never going to really be able to to deliver what investors want on cash flow. Somebody somebody's got the bad idea here. We what <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, and the private operators are influenced by a need to monetize these assets, right? That that they yeah. they need to grow in order to to maximize valuation in order for for one of the the more call it modest buyers to step in. Yeah. And buy approved reserves. Yep. Yep. There's that, and then there's the other potential bad idea, which is. We're seeing a lot of that activity come back in small plays, like stuff that just doesn't move the needle, either in terms of cash flow or supply. And so you kind of look at it as uh, as the you know guy who calls up a doctor and says, "I want you to buy into this well." And and I say this not to disparage doctors, but because I heard about it, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, sure, oil oil's on the rise. I'll buy into a well, knowing that not knowing it's dry gas in the middle of like nowhere, Louisiana, and it never produces." So. Um, there's probably some bad money getting thrown around out there, but you know, I think in general we're seeing a real a real pivot here. Hopefully, it's, hopefully it's enough to satisfy what investors have been asking for for a while. So, just before we go to, to more of the international discussion, what when we look at the private versus public split uh, in terms of North America rig activity or, or capital at the moment, how if, if all of these private operators wanted to put their metal you know foot, foot on the pedal? Is it going to move the needle or is it kind of distraction? I think it's distraction. When we look at the horizontal rig count in the major plays, it's holding steady. We're seeing we're seeing the smaller guys throw money out there, uh, whether it's horizontals and smaller plays, less productive, or whether it's vertical, vertical rigs. Um, they're still going for growth. They're still trying to do the old HGTV buy and flip model, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so they're trying to prove it up, find some untapped value and, and get out. But on the macro side, what's driving things is really going to be uh, what's what what the public guys are doing. We're going to see this time next year if it works out. Well, and so so kind of the, one of the big takeaways that I saw in your, your most recent report was about you know somewhat modest uh, exit entry growth, but you know a, a huge on a percentage basis cash flow that a lot of these operators are going to be. Uh, I'll say dealing with as if a bunch of cash is a problem. Um, <laughs> if, if we shift, I believe that's the name of a song from like the late nineties. <laughs> right? um, no, I don't think they're going to have a problem knowing what to do with it. They got they got a lot of debt. I mean, these guys are are burdened pretty high with debt. They're getting it back. I mean, they're getting back to where they were in a 2018 world of of financial. Uh, financial strength, and it's only going to get better after that. Even at fifty bucks, you know, if they hold the line, that's the question. This the year, line. this year is the year of the pivot. Next year is this is the year of the promise. Next year is uh, 
is the year of actually maintaining, right? Is there um, a yeah. group for uh, shale company executives for, for holding the line? Uh, in the way that there is for the game stock. Uh, so, Kareem, uh, looking internationally, uh, your, your kind of companion report to, to, to Reed's, uh, I think the title was Welcome to the Good Place or, or something, you know, yeah. fairly attractive. Can, can you describe a little bit about, you know, so, so Reed's working on a, uh, a, a constrained group of operators getting, you know, more, more cash perhaps than they know what to do with. What's yeah. happened internationally since the last time we spoke? Yeah, I mean, if you think back and read kind of the way he described the U.S. is important for the market globally and as about how we think about prices, where they are today. So we're trading at 65 TI, close to $70 brand. This price environment in 2017 or 2018 would have unlocked probably a million and a half barrels a day to two million barrels a day of U.S. growth. I mean, we saw it in 2018 with even lower prices than this. So I think the, the shift in the behavior in the U.S. does matter in a big way to how the market is thinking about this cycle going forward. If you don't have that supply, that immediate supply elasticity in the US, it allows you to be a lot more comfortable in looking to the rest of the stack, the old, if you want, the old pre-shale market, so demand, OPEC, uh, other producers, non-OPEC producers, and trying to think about what the market is going to look like over the next two to four quarters, assuming the US keeps that restraint and you don't get the kind of boogeyman back into the market. And for the market going in, I mean, if you think back to what we were talking about in January, I think you called the podcast at the time, Cards Before the Horse. We were talking about mm -hmm. how prices have got, had gone, gotten ahead of, of fundamentals. So basically, we were trading on anticipation of the demand recovery rather than necessarily fundamentals tightening all that much. Uh, I think we're now getting into, over the next two quarters, the period where fundamentals are catching up. So we are starting to see that big demand leg up vaccinations in the U.S. pick up, vaccinations in Europe picking up. China is free and clear for the most part in terms of its demand. So suddenly the global demand picture is a lot, looking a lot brighter, which is the, the first positive. And the second is downside risks to demand have become much smaller than they were in the fourth quarter of last year coming into this year because you've now cleared the, the, the key vaccination hurdle in a lot of the major markets. You'll still have risks. Obviously, what's happening in India and in India is forcing us to revise down our demand in the second quarter. What happened in Latin America and Europe over the first quarter pushed us to lower that that demand outlook earlier this year. But overall, systemically, you are moving into an environment of very sharp demand growth over the next two quarters. And we're thinking it's something in the range of five and a half to six million barrels a day versus where we were in the first quarter. So that's a massive, uh, a massive increase in, in demand. And you're starting to see supply catch up. Uh, obviously, OPEC plus countries are starting to release some of the barrels into the market. You do have a risk in the form of Iran. We can talk about if you want. Uh, but without the U.S. moving back into big growth mode, you have enough demand growth really to start tightening the global market again. And finally, both sides of the oil ledger are moving into that recovery. And I think that's where we are today uh, in terms of the fundamentals. So and to so, us, it's looking, it's looking encouraging and why we call it the good place, as you mentioned, is we're now entering a period where we feel like the fundamentals will be tightening sufficiently to justify and defend prices in the current price range. I think there is a debate to be had of whether there's a risk of overheating and at what point we can bring Reed back into the conversation in terms of at what point does, is just too much money for the U.S. producers to, you know, not put some of it back to work through CapEx and through drilling and through growth. I think that's a real risk on the upside. 
But where we are today, I think we feel comfortable that this current price environment is sufficient for both the industry to start recovering, fundamentals to be to be on a sustainable tightening path, and for OPEC plus countries, a lot of the major exporters to breathe again. So really, the it sounds like the physical markets have caught up with, with, with the paper markets and the prices that we're seeing today are fairly representative reality, but there's not, based on what we see and what we know, we're, we're, we are in kind of a, a good place of balance and it's more of a catch up these past few months in terms of the difference of where we are compared to January. Correct. And that goes back in part to what Reed was talking about uh, on the U.S. side. The, the environment he's describing in that restraint, it works in the current range in the 60s, in the you know mid-50s to mid-60s range for the U.S. If you start moving into $75 WTI, the nonlinear kind of scale of capital that comes into the market becomes a bit trickier for restraint to remain because suddenly your option set widens dramatically. You can return significant amounts of cash while growing at the same time. So we're not there yet, but I think that's one of the challenges to us when we think about the upside risk is how sustainable is an environment where, you know, TI and Brent are trading sustainably above 75. It's hard for us to see, at least over the next two years, when we have so much spare capacity from the Gulf, when we mm -hmm. still have demand recovering slowly back to 2019 levels. So it is getting better, but it's not, you know, free and clear, I would say. And to your point, Kareem, that's that's really one of the questions we have looking at North America is what's that tipping point? Where do we really start to see leakage of capital back into the field? You take a you know, these guys, a lot of them last year when they were hedging it, they were looking at a they were looking at a curve at 55, 50, 55 bucks. That's what their that's what their their plan this year was built on. And now we're at 65. So they're getting some gravy on that. Right. They're not up in activity. Uh, you know, next year, going into next year, they're going to be hedging at a much higher price. So the question is, what is another if if you were, you know, let's say they hedge at a 60, 62. And then we see a 75 kick up. Are they going to still restrain on another $10 diff? Or are they going to say, you know what, this is too good. Uh, we are in completely uncharted territory here. If you've listened to any commentary over the last nearly two decades of unconventionals, there's always been somebody out there saying the best way to destroy value in energy is to drill a horizontal well, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and with good reason, people made that statement. But now we're starting to see that pivot, and we're really at the at the very beginning of that of that transition. So, yeah, we've wondered too, like where do we start to see leakage? This year, I don't think we see leak we see leakage. You know, I think we've got a pretty steady outlook on price, so there's not a lot of upside. These guys, you know, they're going to have to spend more next year. To keep production flat just due to the mechanics of the system uh, we've got a higher price next year they're going to hedge at a higher price so they can spend more but we're still looking at a pretty uh pretty consistent cash flow back to shareholders so i don't know that if if they hedge at 60 or 62 next year i don't know that a 70 dollars price makes a makes a big difference it might it might yeah but I, I would almost be more confident in saying it'd be more like this year but I, I would definitely be less confident saying that next year than this year. A $10, a $10 price upswing this year, which is what they're capturing. I mean, they had to hold the line. They had no yeah. choice but to hold the line. Next year, they prove they can do it. Prices are higher. They're going to be hedged at a higher price. Maybe there would be more leakage. Yeah. I mean, the benefit for this year, too, is the kind of the unexpected 
uplift, right? I mean, if they were planning 50-55 and they're getting 65, sticking to restraint allows them to get much further along on the balance sheet financial repair than they would have been planning on otherwise. So instead of it being a two to three year repair cycle, now suddenly by the end of 2021 at 65, you can get a lot of the companies or at least the companies that matter in better shape financially. So going into 2022, that, that choice is more kind of dynamic. Fair enough. So what were you, I mean, just kind of making up the situation here, if, if, if I'm an executive that wants to start growing my oil, what's the startup time or the startup cost for that? I assume the service sector is still inexpensive. Um, is labor ready that, that if I wanted to start drilling aggressively tomorrow, I guess one, how long would it take for, for me to get put that to work? And two, is there enough? I mean, part of the, the the trend from prior years, you had these giant multi-well kind of frac systems where, where you brought on, make up numbers, eight wells at a time with, with a yeah. single job. Do, do those giant opportunities still exist or are we talking on a well-by-well -well basis? No, I mean, well, so you've asked a couple of questions. The operations are still going much more towards these these large-scale projects. Now, you know, when we saw that transition back in like 2015, 16, 17, you know, it, it became an issue of, well, we're not we're not bringing on a well a week. We're bringing on eight wells in one week and then we're going to wait right. five or six weeks and bring on eight more. So you got much, much chunkier blocks of production. It became a supply chain management thing, a logistical thing. And you started to see these pads get operated like, you know, offshore projects almost. I think we're pretty locked in on that. The industry is pretty good. I think your question is more of, well, if a Conoco or an EOG or a Devon wanted wanted to go and say, I'm going to throw 10 more rigs at the field, or if all three of them did, is there mm -hmm. still capacity? Is there is there labor, all that? Yeah, there is. We're expecting rig activity to kick up next year, and so we've built in a little bit of price inflation. But, I mean, we're down at prices where we were back in the last bust <laughs> uh, just a few years ago. So, um, so they're still at at amazingly low prices i mean we went from a rig count last year uh we, we entered what in 2019 i think we averaged like 920 rigs and we were coming down off of that and last year kind of when the bottom fell out of the markets we were at about 750 rigs onshore and now we're up to 450 480 but only 400 horizontals so when you think about the spare capacity in the service market uh, we're running half the rigs that we were 15 months ago. There's a lot of opportunity there, even accounting for cannibalization and stuff like that. People are ready to work, stimulus notwithstanding, <laughs> mm -hmm. perhaps. Uh, but I think you could ramp up pretty quickly if they wanted to. I, I think the I think the reason people aren't ramping up is boardroom decisions, not operational inventory, labor, supply chain, anything like that. It is all done by looking at the finances. That's it. And locally, I mean, is there any time locally in terms of play-by-play? -play? Aside from the uh, Permian, do we need to be looking at anything? <laughs> uh, I don't want to say that's the only thing to look at. Um, but, you know, you look at where some of the other plays are, like like Bach, and it's running, you know, not even 15 rigs. And it was down last year, um, even before everything happened. But I mean, it's been hovering 12 to 15 rigs and you look at who's there, it's, it, you know, the, the big guys there, Hess, Marathon has some stuff, Exxon and, and Continental is obviously a big guy. And then you got some pure plays, 
that are you know in and out of bankruptcy maybe but devin bought that wpx and is looking to mm. looking to shed it right that's what they said in their statement they're not looking to grow their bakken asset there so it's tough to make a strong case for the bakken those are pretty disciplined companies that are still there that are the major companies or where the bakken's the primary asset and they're they're disciplined and the other companies it, you know it it may not be worth worth putting money there. You look at the Eagleford, it's a similar story on a higher level. You know, you're looking at maybe 40-ish rigs, I think it, I think we are. And it's the usual suspects. And I just don't see them ramping up because it's not their core asset anymore. So, so I think the story is really the Permian. So if there are going to be bad ideas, they're going to be more meaningful in the Permian the Basin than in the... <laughs> It's okay to see bad ideas in other you're places. You're only talking about this because we had a cold front come through Houston, so you're probably wearing your old 90s jeans today. Uh, well, it's also because of the, uh, I was just reminded of, you know, uh, I saw Elon Musk on Science Live last weekend, who I think is the second CEO billionaire to have been a guest host on Science Live. Uh, do you know the other? Uh, yeah. Donald Trump. Uh, so we go with that where you will, but that, that's, <laughs> we're going to abbreviate never. How, how long? How long ago was he? Was he the host? Was it? Uh, was it recent past? <laughs> it was twice. Apparently, it was. Uh, I think wow. when he was the host of The Apprentice and when he was running for president. But, but yeah, was, it was during the during the primaries. I think he was running that, that kind of popularity wave. Because I think it's odd. It's it's weird to have an energy executive as the host of Science Lot. Uh, it's. I was trying to picture, you know, an oil company exec going up there and telling jokes or something. He's, a, he's also a meme enthusiast, so you know, that helps too. Yeah. And crypto, he, he, he dabbles in a few different things beyond the, beyond energy, yeah. Uh, he yeah. certainly does. All right, so, so steering us back, Kareem, if we're, if we're looking kind of in a light, yeah. we've talked about North America and, and there seems to, to be what I'm interpreting it as some risk around the restraint continuing, but but it sounds like even if if, if one loses restraint, you know, e even then it it is going to have to take a lot of activity, you know, in the Permian as opposed to the kind of the the, the full U.S. When you're looking yeah. internationally, I think uh, I think in your report you, you suggested that there's room to maneuver. I think were your words um, within the current price environment, but with, and, and that the, I guess the the immediate activity is removing some of that spare capacity from the market Correct. so putting a few more bills back to work yeah but again so, I mean, that's, uh, so that's the immediate challenge right the immediate challenge is moving so spare capacity wise we're coming into the second quarter with something of in the range of eight million barrels a day between the opec plus members uh think about that versus probably three three and a half million barrels a day as their normal uh, kind of pre-COVID 2018-2019 average range. So we're working with the four plus million barrels a day of spare capacity to work back just to get back aligned uh, with where you are uh, before the crisis. O over the course of the next three months, they've announced that they've un they're unwinding around 2.3 million barrels a day of capacity, bringing those back onto the market. We think that they were very much needed given the growth in demand I was talking about earlier, but you'll still have something in the range of five and a half, six million barrels a day of spare capacity. So you're making a big dent in that process, but you're not all the way there. The process, the, the key challenge is going to be how you're going to uh, bring the rest of those uh, excess barrels back into the market. Demand is going to give you room for it. But it's also important to think about how Iran would play into that mix, mm -hmm. depending on how those barrels do come back uh, over the next, you know, six to twelve months, uh, if they do come back, as we assume. 
when you're looking at a kind of a country by country basis, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the U.S. Iran is hanging out there, and it sounds like that return is expected, and it's expected to be fairly measured. Uh, I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's changed. So over the past quarter, I would say the market consensus has shifted a bit on Iran. We've gone from maybe it comes back, maybe it doesn't. We'll see what Biden does. To now, uh, with negotiations being fairly active between both sides, and some of the big hurdles, you know, there's clear intent and will on both on both sides to get back to the to the JCPOA or the Iran deal, uh, the way it was constructed under Obama. Since that intent is there, I think consensus expectation has been that Iran comes back. The broad, but the market, if you look at prices, has really shrugged it aside. The assumption is we have enough growth in demand over the next six months, 12 months, uh, post-COVID kind of that recovery on the, on the demand side. And the fact that you still have Saudi Arabia and OPEC managing the market mm-hmm. carefully, there's enough buffers in the system to absorb whether it's a million to a million to a million five billion, uh, uh, million barrels a day of Iranian oil coming back in over this period. If you want to think historically, this is probably the best possible environment to bring back that type of volume into the market is when you're going into a massive demand upswing because it makes it a lot easier to maneuver for uh, for OPEC and for uh, for the market as a whole to, to digest those barrels versus when you're in a normal condition and suddenly you have a gush of a million plus barrels a day and suddenly you need to have someone cut to offset it. So I think that's the big difference here. So from that, that's the, the position the market has made fairly clear. You can see it in prices, uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's still a lot of oil that can come relatively quickly when it does come on. So it's going to be important to see when, when that arrives. Are there any other countries that, that I mean, we, we've talked about Iran and the U.S. Or what are the other things that we should be looking at within, I suppose, OPEC or, or even international outside of OPEC? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's tough. You know, for the past year, we've been talking, we've been kind of having these conversations. The problem with COVID is the scale of the swings on the supply and demand side are such that, mm-hmm. you know, 100, 200,000 barrels a day here and there, it doesn't move the needle all that much in terms of where we are. We're, we're talking about multi-million barrels a day swings on the demand side over the next few quarters. So Saudi Arabia matters, Russia matters, kind of the OPEC plus cohesion of, of the group as a whole, as I said. They're, they're unwinding 8 million barrels a day of spare capacity over the next year or so. How that, if it's disorderly or orderly, can have big implications for how, how much markets keep tightening, even as demand recovers. So it still matters that Saudi Arabia is in, has a clear intent to be managing that, that return of, uh, of oil into the market and still has fairly high price aspirations, as high as they can get them. So that still matters in terms of the OPEC side. On the non-OPEC side, you do have a recovery. So if you think about the big, the big countries, Brazil, Canada, North Sea, you, we are seeing a pickup over 2021, 22, 23 of some of it is projects that were already slated to come on. So it's not new projects. These are sanctioned projects, kind of pre-crisis coming back, coming online. Some of them are shut in from Canada coming back in uh, over this year and next. So you're moving from a big decline in 2020 across the world outside of the U.S. Uh, non-OPEC outside of the U.S. to moving back into growth for the next three years. And that's going to help on, on the supply side as demand recovers. But we start to see a bit that kind of loss of investment, loss of FIDs. We start to see it creep in in 2023, 2024, where you start to see a lot of those countries move into decline uh, in, a pretty, in, a, in a pretty visible way. So you are seeing kind of, a, if you want to think about it in shape, a parabolic recovery where you go from negative this year to po- slightly positive over the next three years 
and back negative in 2024 onwards. And the big debate in the market is how big is that kind of decline in the outer years and whether it is big enough to a point where, you know, the U.S. and OPEC can't meet, can't meet that call. And that would kind of lead to unconstrained price upside and, you know, super cycle like uh, environment on, on, uh, for oil. Before we get into that, it, do you have any compliance concerns internationally in the way that we shared for, for North America in terms of you know people agreeing to, to, to keep certain barrels in the ground? I mean, OPEC is fairly it has kept a fairly uh, relatively tight ship, I would say, in terms of that recovery. I think as prices rise, the incentive to start bringing barrels faster will rise. So within the OPEC group, you have a camp which is pretty firmly entrenched between Russia, the UAE, who are of the view that they should bring barrels faster mm-hmm. as demand recovers. At these prices, there's no reason to be holding back oil. You have another camp, which is really the Saudi Arabia camp, which really wants to make sure that they can defend, they can bring barrels back without threatening prices in a major way and make sure that prices remain relatively supported. So you have that kind of friction within the group, but overall, that that. For, for the time being, at least, we expect that uh, construct to remain. On the non-OPEC side, it's not. It's really more about how fast they can get operationally back up and running and the projects back online. At these yeah. prices and the 65-plus world for Brent, all of these projects make money. So whoever can bring oil back on fa- as fast as possible or shore up their declines will try to do it on the non-OPEC side. So I think it's a different calculus there. You have issues in Canada around infrastructure. That's kind of a different discussion. Uh, Brazil around, you know, execution, mm-hmm. bringing the projects online, the COVID outbreaks, the platforms. So you have localized issues in each of these countries, but none of them are about necessarily, you know, voluntary restraint the same way it is in the U.S. Uh, on the shale side. These companies are all have break-evens on most of these projects that are, you know, significantly below uh, current prices. Um, both on the capex side and the opex side so uh, you're going to see the, the the global upstream engine restart the question is how fast do you see the fid engine restart and that's where a lot of the debate is uh, that's a, that's a more kind of medium term strategic discussion happening and there are conversations in boardrooms of of producers around the world around that specific topic so you mentioned supercycle, um, and there's you know been increasing press on on the back of supercycle ideas. You know, some of these you know being some of the kind of larger banks kind of championing the, the idea of uh, supercycle. And I saw a report today that I think, uh, and I may get some of this this wrong, so, so you know help me out. But the prior supercycles, there was one in I think the 1880s on a full commodity basis, not just uh, kind of oil. Um, as the U.S. kind of entered uh, the, the global environment more, the 1930s, I guess, on uh, that the you know around kind of the war period, and then as China really got uh, kind of its demand uh, engine going in the mm-hmm. early 2000s, those were the big three as analogs. From what where I said as perhaps kind of an armchair uh, enthusiast, you know that the closest is maybe the 30s with. Things you close as analog. You see a lot of the comparisons today to the Roaring Twenties uh, of the 1920s. I mean, are, are any of these appropriate analogs for us to be watching right now? I mean, obviously the market has changed dramatically. So I think we're whatever the decade we're entering is dramatically different from each of those three episodes sure. you've talked about. So the debate about the 20s, as you say, the Roaring Twenties is probably the best analog in the sense that it was a broad-based post 
kind of massive shock the 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 world war one kind of the the will of the people to come go back out and and grow and you have an inflationary pressure across commodities as a whole so probably it'll be closer i think but at the end of the day the market has changed so so much and so dramatically different from where it was over the, the those three episodes that it's really it's hard to use any historical parallel uh, on the demand side the problem is you're now contending with a much different uh, elasticity uh, kind of environment, a different substitution environment. You have climate, you have EVs, you have long-term efficiencies uh, stories that are at play that are being, if anything, accelerated by the policy shifts we've seen in recent years. So for that kind of economic argument to, or GDP elasticity of demand to really pick up in a major way, it's it's still too early to tell whether that's going to happen. But what I will say is that that conversation is happening a lot more with clients we speak to. You do have, and a bit the way you're looking at it is, it is an attractive story, right? Mm-hmm. You're coming off a pretty big crisis. People want to go out, want to want to travel, want to drive. Uh, you have this kind of pent up demand aspect of it, and at the same time, you have this supply constraint in the form of. ESG climate restrictions, big IOCs coming out with big plans to throttle back oil and gas investment, U.S. restraints on the shale side. And suddenly you have this picture, which at least for the 2025, 2030 timeframe becomes a lot more attractive for a lot of people. And that narrative is taking hold. And what's tough for us on our side who do supply demand balances and bottoms up project analysis to kind of square is at the end of the day, we can we can find the barrels. We don't have a resource problem. Right. We don't see that massive demand upswing. If anything, we continue to revise our long-term demand lower as a result of the energy transition, as a result of the losses of last year. So fundamentally, if you look at our balances, you're not seeing that type of environment. But the, the narrative has become powerful. And the problem is it's also a medium-term narrative, not so much a short-term narrative. So for it to be disproven, it's going to take a while until... Uh, things play out. So you need the U.S. to start moving back into growing volumes. You need FIDs to come back in a big way. You need that psychology of the the inflationary commodity cycle to reverse. And that can take a while. So in, in that sense, if I want to think about risks to our forecast, we do feel that 6075 is a sustainable fundamental environment. But, you know, paper markets aren't going to do what paper markets do. Yeah. And if that narrative takes hold in a big way, we've seen it in 2007, 2008, you can run, right? Uh, and that's the kind of the, the, the risk in my mind as we get into the next two years, because you're going to see massive demand numbers. You're going to see people get back out. You're going to see uh, stock draws. You're going to see spare capacity come down. And you're going to see the U.S. companies, as Reid said, at least through this year, stand fast and bank the money, return it, work it down. So we're going to have this broad picture, which is, you know, constructive as you look at the medium term um, and kind of uh, how that squares with what eventually happens in terms of real strain on the system, on the supply demand balance, on the oil system physically. I think this is a different discussion. Uh, Reed is, so, so Reed is, we're looking at, uh, the, the U.S. and the super cycle discussion, you know, as Kareem just kind of talked about. I mean, are you hearing any of that in your conversations with, with any of the, the North America operators? And are they looking forward to it on the idea that, well, if there's a super cycle, I'm not going to do anything different? Um, because I think it's also notable that the last super cycle, the, the China driven one, you know, tide oil, you know, really didn't move in a significant way until post 2010. Yeah. Um, so 
so the issue here is horizon, right? Like when, when we're talking about global markets, long dated FIDs, things like that, the super cycle you can capture. You can you can say, okay, I see this coming and I'll make a plan and I've got optionality. The US is much I mean, it's not nearly as short cycle as everybody thought it was, but it is still the shortest barrel. And these guys plan one year in advance. They don't and yes, I've worked for an operator and we have a five year plan because you got to show the SEC that you'll develop your reserves and all that, but nobody believes it. You have at most a two year plan and really a six to twelve month plan. So if there's a super cycle, these guys are gonna be the last one on the roller coaster. They're gonna be the first ones off. Like they they've got the ability that they don't have to necessarily plan for that. And and if you if you say right now we're at the genesis of a super cycle, okay, you see what they're doing and they're sticking to the plan. And what we talked about already on this conversation, there's potential for that leakage next year if we continue to see prices go up. But that's I mean, that's six to 12 months away. So if, if there is one, the behavior is going to be not a thought of, oh, this is a cycle. It's going to be, and eh, now we change our business model again, or we, we have a hybrid business model of what we were and what we want, what we have now, something like that. But it's not going to be a, we need to plan on this, where barrels, what are we going to do? It's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to bring my inventory forward. I'm going to bring my reserves forward and produce them a little faster or I'll throttle it back because that's how these guys operate. And, and yes, there's more friction in that decision because of the cash flow dynamic that we, we've discussed, but they're going to be, you know, they're just going to ride it, I guess is what I'm saying. They're not making decisions on that right now. Nobody is thinking, oh, well, what if price goes up to $100 in three years or two years? You know, they're thinking, okay, I've got my cash flow locked in for this year and let's start doing scenario. I mean, these guys plan their budget in October. They're not yeah, really yeah. thinking about next year until we get into the summer. Uh, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's weighing on their mind. <laughs> yeah. But that's important too for the global market as you think about it, because uh, as Reed said, it's a year horizon, right? They have the flexibility. If, if prices go to 80, 90, 100, they'll bank it. They'll produce what they can. I mean, if you can, if you can hedge out at 90 and you know, Godspeed, they'll grow at 10% because every barrel is making a, a heck of a lot of money at the end of the process. Uh, for the global market, that's the challenge with the super cycle process and how people are thinking about it, including some of the people out there, you know, putting out some of these super cycle calls is if you look today at a 2025 balance, you're going to come up with a, with a big supply gap. It's easy to, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. Whoever's done long-term planning always ends up with a similar kind of the, the droop where you have three to five million barrels a day that you need to make up because base declines are, are mounting and you haven't sanctioned projects. So you have five million barrels that needs to be filled from somewhere. In reality though, you have five years to get to that point, and each year progressively, the market is going to do a process of price discovery to decide whether or not to try to incentivize more supply. And at each point in that process, the U.S. producers will have a choice to make on an annual basis. Do we start? Do we move from zero to five percent growth to five to ten percent growth? It doesn't need to be a massive. We're going from full return to full growth. There's an there's an in between there. The market or so those shareholders might be willing to give leeway on, you know, a 7% growth in an environment where you're at, you know, $80 a barrel than, uh, than if you're in, a, in the mid 50s. So I think that's the process in my mind, which is challenging when you talk about super cycle is you do have a short cycle producer. It might not be as short as it was, but it is still an element in the market that means that every year the balance is dynamic. 
So today, I can't tell you for sure that the 20, 2023 to 2025 bounce is going to look like this exactly because you have feedback loops that, you know, inevitably are going to come into play. And also, you know, I'll just throw this out there. It's probably a lot easier to destroy demand than like to do a step change in demand destruction than demand creation. Right. We saw last year you can destroy demand in a heartbeat. <laughs> um, you yeah. could not get you could not get demand growth nearly that quickly. So a super cycle. It's structural, but yeah, Kareem, you've got a lot of time to plan on it because you've got you've got visibility. You you know you you can make adjustments now so that in a couple of years you're not there. There's always I would I would go out on a limb here and say there's always more risk of a demand destruction event like we've seen, uh, and we see it all the time. I mean, uh, you know we see yeah. little things all the time, but we don't get surprised by undershooting demand growth, right? We get we we overshoot it, but I don't think we undershoot it a whole lot. So correct. I mean, I mean, maybe this is, Kareem, you introduced a little bit ago, you know, the energy transition conversation. We've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, podcasts with, with people talking about solar, people talking about batteries, energy or electric vehicles. Uh, we just talked about Elon Musk, uh, you know, the whole Tesla business. You know, if, if, if I am a uh, shale company or, or a country with a lot of oil reserves, there's an analog of, you know, that there's a guy on the street selling bananas. Uh, well, he can't wait and sell those bananas two weeks from now because they're going to have, you know, a spa solid. Is is there a, a, a structural incentive to, to start monetizing these barrel, barrels more aggressively that, that make that super cycle conversation uh, a little less defendable and, and makes that uh, restraint a little bit more difficult? Are you guys, um, you know, maybe just trying to wrap it up on that? I mean, is, are you guys seeing any of that or is that influencing our forecast at all on, on either side? I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not influencing it, but it is definitely something that we, we keep in the, in the back of our minds and, and actually discuss it a bit is, look, these guys don't want to be stuck with assets that they've spent, you know, billions of dollars to, to claim and to, to prove up and then never produce it, right? So there is an incentive for them to produce it. I think a bigger issue, I mean, there is the upstream issue. There's also a midstream issue because if we're going to continue to develop oil, uh, how much do you want to put into transportation? And we're not there yet in the U.S., and we may never be. But just in general, you look at the world, how much infrastructure are we going to build for oil, knowing that it's going to be a stranded asset or you know mm -hmm. a highly depreciated asset in a few years? And I think that may, that may weigh on the conversations we have. This is very long dated, particularly for a guy that covers U.S., those are some of the things that we think may be more of an inhibitor to bringing that inventory forward, bringing those reserves forward, um, is the ability to do something with it once you do produce it. Yeah. And that's the whole downstream conversation is, especially for refineries and things that are really 20, 30 year investments. If you're looking at a peaking demand environment, would you build that refinery? I mean, that's why most of the refineries being built are being built in Asia where you know that demand will be and why on the Atlantic Basin side in mature markets, you don't see any investments in the, in the downstream except for really bolt-ons or, or expansions. And if anything, you're seeing a lot of uh, kind of rationalizations. But I would say on the resource monetization part, I think it's exactly right. And when I think about that for the market, I think about really the large resource holders, the Gulf mm -hmm. countries, Russia, countries that have massive reserves that are now looking at a 20, 30 year horizon where even if uh, demand is still there and they make the argument that we're the lowest cost producer, so we'll always have a market for our oil, but the price which you'll get for that oil might be structurally decreasing over time as demand peaks. What you've seen is I think there's a spectrum. You have countries like the UAE, 
which have been fairly vocal and aggressive in terms of where they're going. They're going with monetizing resources now. They're off kind of their they're selling off stakes in their offshore pro production. They're trying yeah. to grow production as fast as possible. They want to go from four to five million barrels a day of capacity by the end of the decade. So they've been pretty vocal in where they're going with this. Saudi Arabia is tempted to do the same. Saudi Arabia has a tougher needle to thread because they need to thread increasing capacity without crashing the price, which is a delicate kind of balance because they need the prices a lot more in the short term. But if you look, if you listen at what the crown prince is saying and what the, what the Ramco has said, there is a clear policy to start looking at monetizing the oil resources to fund diversification outside of, outside of oil. And the only way that's going to go over the next 10, 15 years is going to be through higher production. Uh, and Russia is the same. They look at the market and think market share matters, not necessarily because of the short term market conditions, but because in the long term, you want to create that market share for yourself to be able to grow all of those reserves you're sitting on. And I think that calculus is going to become a, a very major factor when you think about the medium and long term in that we have three million barrels a day of capacity being added by the three Gulf producers, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, uh, and even Iraq over the next decade. So the major resource holders are a factor to, in this in this mix. And, you know, if prices rise and the environment allows it, they'll be you, you can be sure they're going to be growing into it rather than sit on the sidelines and mm -hmm. kind of wait. Are the uh, I mean, if we're looking at that, that kind of uh, longer term transition being a multi year kind of challenge rather than immediate monetization, is it safe to say that watching in the U.S. Uh, the, the private operators who seem to be going through that in, in real time as being almost a canary in the coal mine of somebody trying to monetize their assets quickly in order to, to exit them? Or they're, you know, is that an unfair so, learning? So with regards to the private U.S. operators, there's a, there's a distribution on what they're doing. Some are guys that are just picking up a rig. Some are guys that have been in the game for a while. Uh, private equity backed and they're trying to, you know, polish the car up before they before they put it on, put the for sale sign in the window. And then some are, you know, legacy private companies uh, that are never going to go public and they're they don't want to sell out. I would say, you know, I, I don't know that those guys you're really looking at trying to monetize the investment right now, whether depending on the horizon, unless you're one of these old stayed private operators that have been around for forever they're still looking to monetize what they've got, whether it's by, you know, they don't want to produce it out. Um, so so I don't know if it's a canary in the coal mine in the sense you were thinking, but I will say they're not looking five years, they're not looking eight years down the road at what, you know, peak demand and all that. They're looking at, look, can I, can I spend, can I raise, you know, 150, $200 million, prove something up and sell it for 500 million. Right, yeah. But it's also the discussion for the IOCs and for the major international NOCs. I mean, if you have low-hanging fruit, clear, uh, low-break-even projects on your books, you want to try to get them on as fast as possible versus keeping them for a sunny day down the line that you don't know whether it comes or not. So I think that's going to be one of the focuses, too, which you've heard even, even the more aggressive uh, IOCs like Shell. I mean, they have projects in the Gulf of Mexico they're trying to move forward. Total is the same. Uh, Exxon and Guyana. So you're going to see companies try to monetize that that production where they have it, and and that's going to be a, a factor here at, as uh, about how fast we we recover on the supply side. All right. Well, I think that's a uh, a good place for us to leave it. And uh, thank you both for 
for joining again. And uh, we will uh, hopefully have you back maybe with your next quarterly updates to, to uh, talk about how long we were. Talk about how long. <laughs> yeah, maybe by then we'll all be in a pair of bad idea jeans. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. All right. All right. Thanks, Bill. Thank Thanks, you. Kurt. All right. Thanks. Bye. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.